Hey, good morning. My name is Weston. So great to be with you this morning. And I am excited about the opportunity to dive into this study in the book of Acts that y'all have been walking through. If you have your Bible, I want to encourage you to open to Acts chapter 24. We're going to be there uh, in just a few moments. But before we get there, I have a question for you. Do you like strategy games? A favorite when I was younger was Risk. Uh, Risk is that game where it's a world map and you have a set number of pieces and you're trying to move your army to take over different countries. And the ultimate goal is to uh, have world domination on the board. I'm not a much of a Risk fan. I'm the youngest of three and I never won at the game of Risk. And so it's really not a favorite of mine. Uh, but who doesn't like world domination? How about chess? Do you like to play chess? I don't. Again, youngest of three. I never won. I gave it up. But chess is another strategy game that takes cunning and shrewdness and the ability to think multiple moves ahead of your opponent in order to be the winner. In the world of competitive chess, the best of the best are called grandmasters. In international play, they're the ones who are the elite at the top, the echelon uh, that is, is head and shoulders above everybody else. Why? Because in their ability to play the game, in their intelligence, they're able to think not only about where they're going to move their pieces, but where you're going to move your pieces, and not just the next move, but 10, 20, 50, 100 moves down the board, uh, predicting and shaping often where you're going to uh, put your, your pieces so that they can ultimately have victory. They call them grand masters. Now, I want us to think today about the idea that God is the divine chess master of our lives, of all of our lives. I mean, every circumstance of our life, every relationship, every moment, God is in control. That God is the grand master, moving the pieces around the board in order to accomplish his purpose. When we think about his sovereign will and we think about our free will, uh, that God gives us the freedom to live our lives but always under the watchful eye of his divine grandmaster skills and heart. All of it's about bringing glory to his name. Well, here in the book of Acts in chapter 24, we're going to see that Paul's current affairs feels like he's being moved about like a pawn on the chessboard of life. In the last few weeks, we've been looking at Paul's experience in Jerusalem, and it's turning out very different than I imagine he envisioned it when he set his sights on coming to the city to encourage and support the Christians living there. And God is orchestrating the details behind the scenes to prepare Paul to be his ambassador to the Gentile world to accomplish this purpose. You can imagine what Paul is thinking in these moments when his return to Jerusalem is beginning to shape up as the Spirit had spoken in Acts chapter 20, verse 23. Luke uh, says this when he writes, And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. See, Paul's on his way, and he's already heard from the Spirit. Wherever you go, there's going to be imprisonment, and there's going to be afflictions. Wow, what an expectation for what's to come. And in many ways, that is a fulfillment of Luke chapter 21, where Jesus says, But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you'll be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. So let me set the stage. Paul has finished his third missionary journey, and he longs to go to Rome, but God says not yet. In Romans chapter 1, verses 8 through 15, uh, Paul highlights that circumstances and the leading of the Spirit has prevented him from coming to Rome. Instead, he has to go through Jerusalem first. So let's get into today's text and read about Paul's latest circumstance, and then we'll take a look back at what brought him to this moment. So if you have your Bible, 
Acts chapter 24, verses 1 through 9, and allow me to read it for us. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation. And in every way and everywhere we accept this with all gratitude. But, but, but to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. Remember, God's the grand chess master. Be aware that God is moving. We've only read through verses 1 through 9, and although you'll need to read to the end to get the rest of the story, uh, today's passage is full of God on the move. There's a good guy versus a bad guy story happening here. Uh, essentially, you have Paul, who's the good guy, and Felix, who's the bad guy. Felix is bad, corrupt, despicable, cruel, vile. Uh, just as an example, he stole his wife. As a 15-year-old girl, she married another man, a king, and Felix lusted after her, seduced her, and then stole her. Tacitus, the historian, said uh, about Felix, he had the office of a king and he ruled with the mind of a slave. Felix was a slave who'd been set free because of the influence of his brother and then given a rulership as a governor. So he had the office of a king, but he ruled with the mind of a slave. His name is actually Antonios Felix, and he's the procurator of Judea, or the governor of Judea, and he follows in the line of Pilate. Yes, Pontius Pilate. He ruled in Judea from AD 52 to 59, and he rules because of his brother. His brother was friends with Claudius, uh, who served under Caesar, and Felix didn't have any skills or qualities of a leader to make him qualified to be a governor. He got the job because of the influence of his brother. In fact, he wasn't a very good governor in the years that he served. He did manage to quell some riots, but what we know is that he shut the riots down with such vengeance and with such overreach of violence that many, many people died and the Jews ended up hating him. Uh, here in the passage, he appears cowardly and indecisive and a man fearful of losing his position of power. Well, maybe not in this verses 1 through 9, but certainly in the verses to follow, you'll see that come out in who he is. But what is God up to? Why is he allowing Paul to come before this ruler? Well, he's the grand chess master, and the pieces are on the move. If we were looking at this chapter as a whole, there are different angles we could take, but as we consider where Paul has come from in his journey to Jerusalem, we can talk about the providence of God. We could also talk about the hatred and the unbelief and the hardness of men's hearts, Ananias and the elders, Tertullus, the Jews who came along to bear false witness, they all have a hardness of heart towards the things of God, specifically towards Jesus and anybody who follows him. But today, let's look at what got Paul into this place in the, in the first place. See, in the past weeks, we've covered his experience in Jerusalem. Following the wisdom of James and the other believers, Paul goes to the temple to try and convince uh, that he, as a Christian, was not anti-Jewish, Jewish, that he still believed in some of the customs of Israel. But while he was there in the temple, some Jews from Asia Minor recognized him. And because of his impact in Asia Minor, among the Jews who were coming to know Christ, they attacked him and beat him and tried to kill him. Paul, up to this point, has ministered as a free man on his missionary journeys. 
but now begins a season of ministry under imprisonment. Here in Jerusalem uh, for a few days, and then Caesarea for a few years, and then eventually on to Rome. See, Jerusalem, he's being beat up and being attacked, and, and this, this kerfuffle and this riot, this thing that's going on at the temple, comes to the attention of Claudius Lysias, who is the Roman ruler in Jerusalem. And he beats feet down there with his soldiers to check out what's going on and to break this thing up. Claudius swoops in and extracts Paul to safety at the barracks. And if you remember from our story, like uh, not only does he sweep him to safety at the barracks, but even on the steps of the barracks, he's beating off people who are trying to get to Paul. This crowd is ravenous. This crowd is crazy, out of control to take Paul down. But assuming that Paul must have done something terrible for people to be so adamant at trying to assassinate him, Claudius tries to get an accusation, but that's a no-go. The mob was in a frenzy, and there was no way to get a coherent accusation against Paul from that crowd. He's a Roman occupier, so if you have a Jewish person in, in, uh, in your grasp, and there's no accusation against you, well then, we're just going to torture him. So he stretches him out on a rack to scourge him, and Paul, almost by way of passing, mentions to one of the soldiers standing by that he was a Roman. And that sets the Roman soldiers into a fiery panic. They release him from the rack immediately because to scourge a Roman was a crime, especially without an accusation. But then what next? Well, let's take him to the Sanhedrin. So Claudius says, let's go get an accusation. Let's take him down to the Sanhedrin and, uh, and see if we can come up with what, what is it they're all upset about. So Paul arrives in the custody of the Romans in front of the Sanhedrin, and the Sanhedrin and the, uh, the Pharisees, uh, the Sadducees and the Pharisees who make up this ruling council, they begin to fight with one another. And Claudius cannot get them to come up with an accusation. It's a tough spot as a Roman leader. In this volatile location, he's not only duty-bound by, by Rome to, to not execute a Roman citizen without uh, an accusation, but he's also trying to not allow a riot to get started uh, among these Jewish and religious fanatics. Uh, to uh, not come with an accusation and to see Paul, uh, you know, scourged, uh, to be have him put to death without an accusation is, is really Claudius saying, this is the end of my ro road as a leader, and this is the end of the road maybe for my life, and I'm not going to do that for a bunch of religious fanatics. So he's in a tough spot. So what does he decide to do? He's like, I got an idea. I know exactly what I'm going to do. He's going to do what everybody's ever done since the fall of man in Genesis. I'm going to pass the buck. So uphold Roman law and to up, not upset the Jews to riot. I'm going to send him up to uh, send him down to Felix, a governor Felix in Caesarea. So he, under the cloak of darkness, sends Paul with a letter explaining what's going on and 470 soldiers uh, to escort him to safety in Caesarea. So that's where Paul ends up. Now, Paul is Felix's problem, and he faces the same dilemma of not breaking Roman law and keeping a lid on things in the region. Why? So that Rome doesn't take notice of him and his poor leadership, and somehow he loses his opportunity to be governor. So Felix. Felix is in the same hard spot that Pontius Pilate was in when the Jews wanted to kill Jesus. Pontius Pilate said over and over again, I find no fault in the man, but he let the Jews crucify him because they put pressure on him. Felix appears to be living Pilate 2.0. See, the passage today is really kind of a hearing, and we see the prosecution's case in verses 1 through 9. What is their accusation? They must present an accusation to, for Felix to do anything. 
So Claudius Lysias sends him to Felix with an escort and a letter. And uh, now there's this moment of like, what are these accusations really about? Uh, it seems like shipping him out of town from Jerusalem to Caesarea would have been good enough. Uh, you know, that idea of like, don't let the gate hit you on the backside on your way out. But for the Sanhedrin, this really wasn't enough. It's not good enough. They wanted him dead. Paul was a threat to them. Their security as leaders, their prestige, their spiritual prominence. Paul just stood up to all that nonsense. He called them out as hypocrites and preached Jesus Christ as the Son of God, the Messiah. The very one they deemed a blasphemer and executed through the Romans. So essentially, Paul was doing the same thing Jesus had done. He was exposing their wickedness and acting and their, their acting of being pious when they were really rotten to the core. They had it in their hearts to get rid of him permanently. Plus, the Jews were turning to Jesus everywhere, and this was a real problem for the Jewish leaders. Down to Caesarea they go. They take the 60-mile trip down there, and they come prepared to lay out their accusations against him. And so that's what happens. Look at verse 1. First of all, we meet the accusers. And after five days, so Paul's been in, in Caesarea for five days under house arrest. Uh, after five days, Ananias, the high priest, came down with some, some elders. Everywhere outside of Jerusalem is descending. You have to come down out of Jerusalem. So these leaders come down 60-some miles to bring their accusations. And along with them, they bring a spokesman, one Tertullus. And they lay before the governor their case against Paul. Essentially, Tertullus is here to make the indictment. It's an interesting group of accusers. The high priest Ananias, he was upset for sure to come 60 miles down from Jerusalem for this hearing. And we know Ananias is corrupt as it's been covered in previous weeks in our study. But he's here because he was evil in his soul and he's made a pact with the enemy to self-protect and to, to, uh, to maintain his position and his prestige and his corrupt leadership. And Paul must be put to death according to Ananias. It's a personal vendetta at this point. And then the elders, they came along too. It wasn't good enough to send the high priest. Let's send an entourage of the Sanhedrin. Why? Well, they don't believe, the Sadducees, they don't believe in the resurrection. And Paul is preaching Christ crucified and resurrected. And so he's got to go. And then there's Tert Tertullus. Uh, this is their overpriced Roman lawyer who's ready to show Felix and anyone else present just how good he is at his craft. He's slick. He's slimy. He's not concerned about innocence or guilt or the truth. He's not concerned about the temple or any other religious dispute between these two parties. He's simply here to earn a paycheck. And here's where you got to put your rubber boots on. I mean, if you have hip waders, you might need to go to the closet and get them out and put them on. Because he's going to lay on the flattery and the empty praise so thick and deep with Felix. It's really all a part of the show. It's all a part of the plan to get Felix to listen to the empty accusations of the Jews. He knows the Jews hate him. Felix knows that the Jews hate him. But who doesn't like a little flattery? In verses 2 through 3, we see this flattery uh, as Tertullus brings the, uh, brings the accusation, before he brings the accusation. It says in verse 2, Since through you we enjoy much peace. Oh man, much peace. He was an inept leader. Felix had nothing to do with peace. He didn't know anything about how to keep the peace. Then he says, and since by your foresight, oh, like, right? Like somehow Felix had the ability to like, oh, I can see down the road like that grand chess master that these things need to be put in place so that we have peace in our community, that this would make our lives better and your lives better in our area. He says, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation. 
there's no reforms. Reforms, blah, 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 blah. Felix didn't bring any reforms, and history has no record of anything significant he contributed to uh, during his governorship. All this praise is just empty generalities. In verse 3, he says, In every way and everywhere we accept this with all gratitude. Such huge generalizations and, and exaggerations, this hyperbole of language, uh, buttering up uh, Felix so that he will listen to what he's going to bring is false and uh, an undocumented accusation. It's all emptiness. See, Felix did some bad things. He assassinated one of the high priests because he didn't like him. That's certainly one way to become popular with the Jews whose land you're occupying. Tacitus, the historian, says he thought he could do any evil with impunity. I mean, that is, he thought he could do any evil and get away with it. And Tacitus went on to say he indulged in every kind of barbarity and lust. That doesn't sound like a reformer or a peacemaker to me. Uh, verse 4 is interesting. Where do you go from here? I, want, I mean, like, after you've laid on all of this flattery and, and exaggeration of the things that everybody is standing around knows is not true, what do you do with that? Well, I don't know if Felix kind of gave him the sign to move on or if uh, or Tullus, in exercising his craft as a lawyer, was able to, uh, to recognize, I need to move on, but he turns the corner. He turns the corner in the conversation of this indictment. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. Right? Like, I don't want to keep you. I know you're a busy man. I know you got stuff going on. And in your kindness, again, that's not a word that anybody would have used for Felix. But here's this slimy, sleazy Roman lawyer laying it on thick in order to do what he's going to do next, which is to bring these false accusations. Verse 5 through 9, give us the accusations. And I want you to notice that the accusations fall into three categories. It's very clear in the words that he's using, but it's not actually supported by any evidence. In the passage we read uh, in verse 5, For we have found him, this man, a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world, and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. So three things. Sedition. He's a nuisance. He's a plague. He's stirring up rest and unrest in the community. Uh, this could be translated treason. This is one that would get Felix to act. If there was any accusation being given today that Felix might want to do something about, this would be the one if it could be substantiated, if it was true. But it's not. It's just a lot of hot air. This guy, Paul, is a pain in the neck to us. That's not really an accusation that leads to capital punishment. A sectarianism. He was one of the ringleaders of the Nazarene sect. So they're trying to identify that, like, in Rome, uh, there are competing religions against Caesar. And the Romans are all about putting down anybody that's going to compete against the rule of Caesar. And so here they're trying to stir up in Felix's mind that Paul is leading this faction of these Nazarenes, and the Nazarenes are looked down upon. That's a city, a village, a, a place that, uh, uh, that nobody wants to be known as coming from. Uh, Felix would have been completely aware who the Nazarenes were. This is not new news to him. And so this accusation is designed to like elevate Paul as being opposed to Caesar because he's fanning the flame of these Nazarenes who are some of this offshoot sect. But it doesn't work. It's just not going to work. It's an empty, it's an empty accusation. And then they identify sacrilege, that the idea that Paul has, uh, has created, has, 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 um, that he's uh, experienced blasphemy, that he's brought blasphemy uh, against God, against Yahweh, by breaking the rules, the laws of the temple. And the accusation is about him bringing a Gentile into the restricted area of the temple. There's no evidence that it actually happened. 
He did bring a Gentile into the temple where Gentiles are allowed to be, uh, but the accusation is that he's brought the Gentile into the restricted area. Nobody can offer any evidence of the, of the matter, uh, but this is what really set the Jews off in the first place that caused them to beat him in, uh, in Jerusalem and the Romans to get involved. And the reality is that uh, Claudius didn't want anything to do with their religious fight. He didn't see any reason why that he, they should get involved in that. Uh, but here he is now before Felix experiencing uh, sedition, sectarianism, and sacrilege. That was kind of the three accusations, and all of them are empty. And then verse 9, the uh, prosecution hauls in a bunch of witnesses. All these Jews came along for the ride, and now they just give this blanket uh, affirmation of the accusations. Yeah, we're in agreement with all of that. They've all just you know, perjured themselves uh, by standing with the prosecution. So that's our passage. But I want you to remember the Grand Master. Yahweh is on the move. He's moving the pieces around to fulfill his purposes. If you put yourself in the shoes of one of the pieces on a chessboard, just imagine yourself as a pawn or a rook on the chessboard. And the game is in play. And you're in a particular square. And the question is, what is the next move? If you are the actual pawn and you've put yourself in the shoes of that pawn, and you're trying to decide where to go next, you're only able to see the lay of the land that's right in front of you. Your move is going to be dictated by the circumstances of the other pieces on the board and where they are in association to you. That makes sense. That's how we often live our lives. We make the decisions of our lives based on the circumstances uh, that are happening around us. The things that are happening in other people's lives that we're connected to, through the attitude of our heart, our mental state and how we see those circumstances and, and how we filter them, it makes sense. But that's why we talk about, we, about walking by faith and not by sight as followers of Jesus. As sons and daughters of the king, we have to remember that he's got it all under control. And our new, our new identity allows us to rest in his sovereignty and rest in his sovereign rule. Well, how? By faith. God, the Grand Master, sees it all and is ultimately in control. He isn't limited, right? He isn't limited by circumstances in front of him. He's above it all, outside of the board. He sees all the pieces and is orchestrating and nudging and moving to put all the pieces in play to achieve his purpose. Paul wasn't shaking in his boots, fearful for his life. Later, while in Rome, he writes to the Philippian believers, while he's still imprisoned in Rome, he writes uh, in Philippians 1.21, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Uh, Paul wasn't afraid to lose his life for the sake of Christ, because he trusted by faith that God was the one who was in control. And whether he lived or whether he died was up to the Lord. Uh, but let's follow Paul's example. As we think about living our life and potentially being people who are standing accused and persecuted, how do we follow Paul's example? Well, I'd like for us to consider to expect the expected. Now, sometimes you've heard it said to expect the unexpected. But I want you to, and me, to expect the expected. What does I mean by that? Well, let's look at some passages. 2 Timothy 3.12, Paul writes to Timothy, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Hmm. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 14, Peter writes, But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. 
having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. That sure sounds like what's happening to Paul right here. Falsely accused, put in prison, drugged before the governor, right? They're saying all these things about him, and yet he continues to stand. You'll see next week when we get into it, he continues to stand with a good conscience. He doesn't throw anybody under the bus, right? He simply uh, decides to walk by faith in this moment. Again, in Peter, just a few uh, verses later in chapter 4, verses 12 through 19, it says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. So we shouldn't consider it strange when trials come our way. This should not be a surprise to us. But he says, what should we do when that happens? Rejoice insofar as you share the sufferings, Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Okay, so we just take it as fact. If you're going to walk with Jesus and you're going to follow Jesus, you're going to experience trial. And if you experience trial, the best way to respond to it is to uh, rejoice that you suffer in Christ's sufferings. Knowing that the reward will come, you'll also experience his glory when it's revealed. And it goes on from there, but for the sake of our time, let's look at a couple of others. Jesus said, put it this way, Matthew chapter 5, uh, verses 10 and 11, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, which is kind of like new rules for the kingdom. If you're going to be a kingdom citizen, Jesus is laying out the new pathway to think about being a kingdom citizen. In many of the, the Sermon on the Mount, many of the passages, it says, you've heard it said, but truly I say unto you. So Jesus is going to flip the script for all those who want to follow him and be a part of his kingdom. And so this is what he says, if you're in the kingdom. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Uh, verse 11, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Wow, that sounds like what's happening to Paul in chapter 24, verses 1 through 9. And he goes on in verse 12, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. See, Paul is just walking in a long line of those who say yes to Yahweh to those who've committed themselves and by faith walk with him. He's saying, this is what's going to happen. You're going to face difficulty. You're going to face persecution. You're going to face uh, accusations and falsehood against you. But when you do, rejoice and be glad. Why? Because there's a reward that's coming. So when we live, this is it, when we live bold, fearless, spirit-filled lives before others, we will face opposition. It's a promise. Expect the expected. But we too often only see God as orchestrating the circumstances of our lives when things are going well. When things are going well, we are all about, I am so blessed. How are you doing, brother, today? Oh, I am so blessed. This happened and this worked out and this relationship is going great. But when we face trials and difficulties, we often ask, where are you, God? Why have you abandoned me in my time of need? Why are you not standing up for me and quieting these false accusations against me? Whether we're in a season of good and blessing and everything is moving along or whether we're in a season of difficulty and challenge and maybe even a false accusation, we have to walk by faith and we have to trust the grand chess master that he is at work and he is on the move. He's not on the move to bring you prosperity and leisure and pleasure that life would be all about rainbows and unicorns. He is on the move to bring glory and honor and power and praise to his name and he will use any circumstance to fulfill his purpose. So in, his, in the story, he's moving the pieces in place to put Paul right where he wants him to achieve his plans. And we see this on a grand scale because we can see the whole story and understand how it impacts uh, all of church history. That this is the beginning and, and, and our experience with Jesus today has been influenced because of what God did with Paul 
in this season of world history. But when we look at it in that grand way, this macro uh, vision through the story, we lose sight of the fact that God is a personal God. He is Emmanuel, God with us. It's not just about history and the movement of Christianity across the world. It's also about the individual lives that he loves and wants to reconcile to himself. Paul undoubtedly had compassion for these wicked men who are accusing him. They are enslaved to their sin and their unbelief, both for the Jew and for the Roman. God even uses broken, evil, selfish, wicked people to accomplish his plans. So Paul ends up in Caesarea for two years under Felix's rule. You're going to read about that in the next, uh, next week. But it's only after he's replaced that Paul makes it to Rome. But you can be sure in those two years he was under house arrest in Caesarea, Paul shared the good news of the gospel with anyone who would listen and with Felix. And maybe Paul's imprisonment in Caesarea is the, the roots of modern day prison ministry. I mean, you wonder how you'd live if you were incarcerated for crimes you didn't commit? Would you whine, complain, speak ill will and slander and berate the authorities who put you there? Or would you, or would I, have open eyes and open hearts to see where God is at work and partner with him in the work that he's doing among the prisoners and the guards and the authorities that we might be imprisoned with? So, we trust in the sovereignty of God and place all of our faith in him alone that our lives might be pleasing in his sight. Ephesians 1, 11 through 12 says that in him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. All the circumstances of our lives are working according to the counsel of his will so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his, of his glory. All of this orchestrated by him so that we might be to the praise of his glory. Romans 8, 28 and 29, very famous and familiar passage. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he also was predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Right? That's what this is all about. God works all things together for our good. That's where we often stop. What we miss is he does all of that so that we might be conformed to the image of his son. So whether you're in a season of what feels like uh, plenty and blessing and life is going along, or you're in a difficulty and a hardship that feels uh, weighty and crushing and burdensome, all of that is so that you might be conformed to the image of his son. All of that is so that we might reflect and be more like Jesus as we learn to follow him in whatever circumstance we find ourselves in, trusting by faith that God is in control. There's so many more passages that I want us to uh, take a look at. We're running out of time here, but I want to just highlight two more as we finish up. Romans chapter 13, verse 1, Paul writes to the Romans, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. So Paul is standing before Felix. He's being falsely accused, and, uh, and he knows that all of these people are in authority and are, um, are uh, given uh, their place of authority because God has allowed it to happen. None of this is out of God's control. Whenever you face accusations or uh, uh, persecution from others, being reminded that those who are in authority over you have been there because God has allowed them to be there. So where is he at work and how can we partner with him and how do we stand up under that because we trust him and we walk by faith? Today, determine you'll walk in faith and trust the grand chess master of our lives to lead us, to sustain us, and to show us how and where to follow him. I'm excited about what God is doing at ICC. I'm excited about this uh, journey that you've been on through the book of Acts. And I can't wait for you all to hear about what Paul's response is to these circumstances he finds himself in in the beginning of Acts chapter 24. Next week, we're going to dig in. Don't be late. Come on back for that. 
but for today, thanks so much for the opportunity to serve you and to speak to you on behalf of what the Lord wanted to have for us today. Walk by faith, believing the Grand Chess Master is at work. Thanks so much.